Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. I'm your host, Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting high above the Dongcheng District in Beijing. With me, sadly not in the room, but across town, once again in quarantine, something I feel like we might have to talk about, is my co-host, David Moser. David, how you doing? Well, not so good. <laughs> it feels a little bit like we've gone back to... Uh... The beginning of this year or last year with uh, I'm on under lockdown, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, you know, I feel like recently everything has been going backwards. Uh, I just was reading Lulu da Silva is back in the saddle in Brazil. Bibi Netanyahu seems to be returning as uh, Israeli prime minister. Trump seems like he's maybe regurgitated back <laughs> into the U.S. presidency. Maybe there's a chance. And Chairman Mao has certainly come back to life in China, it seems. And it seems like the Cold War is coming back. Nuclear weapons are coming back. So this makes me sort of confused about the arc of history. It seems like everything's going... I think we... I really feel like we need to talk to someone who has some real historical perspective on things. Don't you think? Well, thank you for that incredibly <laughs> awkward segue, David. But we absolutely <laughs> do have somebody. With us today is Melinda Leo. She's an award-winning foreign correspondent, the Beijing bureau chief for Newsweek magazine, and has reported on China for much of her career. Uh, in addition to her great work um, covering China, she's also covered the occupation of Afghanistan, the fall of the Taliban, the liberation of Kuwait, the U.S. military interventions in Somalia and Haiti. She was one of the few journalists who was there firsthand to witness the shock and awe bombing of the Iraq capital. Basically, if it blew up in the late 20th or early 21st century, Melinda was there at ground zero, and she's lived and worked in Beijing since November 1998, returning to a city in which she first resided back from 1980 to 1982 as Newsweek's first Beijing bureau chief. So if there's somebody who can help put the events of today into the context of yesterday, Melinda, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I guess if, um, I guess if you have to be old in a place that you know very well to be an old China hand, then I'm that. I'm an old China hand. <laughs> I think it's great to have somebody who actually has experienced China in its different incarnations, because I do think that perspective is useful. I mean, one of the things that I find with a lot of, you know, when I first came to China, I thought China will always be just like it is as I, the moment I arrived. And of course, as we know, there are ups, there are downs, there are movements backwards and leaps forward, some great, some not so great. And of course, right now, you know, I, I was just telling, I was talking to David just before we went on the air, and it does feel like sometimes every time we, we have one of these podcasts, it's like, and this week in COVID. But of course, you know, while the rest of the world has moved on and it's just, you know, basically just frolicking in a, in, in a, in a pandemic or post-pandemic world, or at least what they feel is a post-pandemic world, we are, of course, subject to many different COVID policies. However, David, in the, like, we're taping this on November 11th, right in the afternoon, and about 30 minutes before we started taping, we got some, is it good news? What kind of news did we get, David? Mostly it was a very long um, sort of bureaucratic missive about, you know, everyone keeping the nose to the grindstone, keeping everything moving ahead, making everything orderly, you know, uh, notifying the public in a timely fashion and all this. But a few things, or only a few significant things, re, you know, uh, downgrading the or changing the, the danger zones from from high-risk high, high risk levels to mid-risk levels to low-risk levels to eliminating the mid-risk and just high-low and other ones that I won't get into, but had to have mostly having to do with reducing the quarantine time for overseas travelers coming back. Not really very much about uh, a change here. 
And uh, my WeChat, I'm under full lockdown here. They've got uh, Dubai everywhere and everything's closed off. And the, 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 t- the tenants here in my residential area are just pissed off beyond belief that they haven't even had a, had a formal announcement of how long we're going to be in this state. And a lot of people, you know, they have kids that have to be educated online now. And so they're, everyone's trying to plan their lives and they're not even giving us a hint of whether it's going to be five days, 10 days, six, seven days. Nobody has any idea. You know, in Chinese, in French, they say, plus ça change, plus ça la même chose, right? It's, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. And I, I don't think it's much different. But, but David, did you, do you even know why they're locking down your compound? I mean, did some, it, was there a case in your compound? Or is this a case of maybe there will be one, so everyone has to be locked down? There were cases. Uh, the place where I live, the residential area has uh, what's, what's called, you know, building number one, building number two, building number three. But they're really vast compounds. So there's three different compounds. And I'm in compound two, and there were six, I think six or seven uh, non-symptomatic cases in building three, and therefore the whole thing is being locked down. Um, so yes, there were cases, uh, not many, and they were asymptomatic, but there you go. You know, I think the big news probably internationally is going to be the reduction of the quarantine time from seven days plus three days of home quarantine to five days plus three days of home quarantine. Although, you know, the cynic in me is like, I mean, we've talked about this before, but having... Is it because I live in Beijing that I, I, I feel secretly thrilled that if I leave China, when I come back, I will only be subject to five days of medically enforced incarceration at my own expense, plus three days of house arrest? Like, thank you? So there's that. I think I think some of the, the bigger news for traveling is going to be the reduction in the number of tests you need to take to come in. It's now down to one test within 48 hours, instead of two tests within 48 hours, and a, a kind of bureaucratic move, but one very important for travelers as well, the circuit breaker policy, whereby airlines are punished by having their flight routes canceled or at least suspended if they have so many cases of COVID come in on a particular flight. That policy apparently is going to be taken away, which will increase the number of flights coming into China and hopefully bring down the, bring down the ticket prices. I think for a lot of people, and uh, David and Melinda, tell me if you've heard this too, but for a lot of people leaving China and coming back, part of it was, you know, people were delaying their plans partially to avoid all of the the, you know, the bureaucratic bullshit, but also part of it too was just that the flights coming back were irregular and incredibly expensive. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's always good. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's always good to have less quarantine. It's always good to be able to do some of your isolation at home instead of a you know, central quarantine facility, which which can vary. I mean, I, ha- I have a friend who's actually in a very nice uh, art-filled, uh, small kind of boutique hotel room. But then there are others who are in unfinished apartments with no furniture in them. So it's, uh, you know, that's a risk that people... Don't like. I think the issue here is China's, Chinese authorities seem to be either in the throes of a great and strenuous debate at the top about really how do we deal with this thing, or they're more or less kind of in sync with each other, um, but they just don't know how to maintain the name of a zero-COVID strategy, but change it somehow. So it's the rhetorical version of the magician who welcomes his audience into a room with a beautifully laid table, ready for a banquet, wine glasses, sterling silver cutlery, and then has to whisk the white tablecloth out from underneath all of those beautifully laid things. Maybe you can't do it very slowly. You maybe just have to do it quickly. But, that you know, this is the debate. This is the dilemma. And 
I don't think anyone knows how it's going to end. David, I mean, your experience and suggests, and I think this is something that a lot of people are talking about internally, these are important changes for people coming in and out of China. But a lot of the language, and again, this is only released about a half an hour ago, so I kind of skimmed it, but a lot of the language that applies to policies within China, you know, they reduce the number of risk zones. There are points about, you know, close contacts and how close a contact actually gets, you know, gets a restriction. But there's still, it feels like for local governments, the guidelines are still like, smarten up. You know, it's not, it, there isn't a lot of really hard or very concrete steps that a local official could look at and go, okay, this is how I can backtrack from whatever I'm doing in Guangzhou or in Urumqi. I mean, I, I just heard from Urumqi, people in Urumqi, that they've, they've been locked in their apartments, many of them for months now. And, you know, how do, how do you unwalk, how do you walk that back? There doesn't seem to be a lot of wiggle room or at least the rhetorical wiggle room necessary for these officials to do that, because at the end of the day, they're going to take a look at this and go, well, you know, I must resolutely pursue dynamic zero COVID and do it more scientifically, which sounds to me like I'm going to get in real trouble if I have cases still in my district. But at the same time, if I overzealously apply the rules that I understand them to be, I'm just going to get a slap on the wrist. And so I don't know how much is going to actually change immediately. I mean, it's still, I still have to show not 72 hours, not 48 hours, a 24-hour code to go downstairs to buy a Snickers bar. That's a, that's a change that's only been in the last like week here in Beijing. And, and no one can explain to me exactly why that policy applies to a 7-Eleven. So you know, it's, yeah. it's frustrating. You know, part of the problem here is, you know the problem in the restaurant when the service is, when the, uh, the food isn't good, or there's some problem, and all you can do is yell at the poor waitress or waiter, uh, and it isn't their fault, but the, you don't have no one else to yell at, and they're just innocent pawns in the middle. Well, that's the way I feel about these these medical workers here, because there's so much uncertainty, and the only one you can yell at are these poor schlups in their in their in their white suits. They're sweating uh, sweating for many reasons, right? So I mean, and and you know we don't know how much shit hit the fan when there were seven or six or seven cases in the building adjacent to mine. There may have been horrible for whoever whoever was deemed responsible for that. And it may be nobody's fault, but there you are. And I, there's another problem here, which is the, the, the area I live in is, I would say, middle class to upper middle class. They're somewhat educated, elite Beijingers. They are hearing more about, you know, possible thaw, thawing of the policies or changes from the overseas media, which they access quite a bit, than they are from their own officials here in Chaoyang District. I, I I can sympathize with them. I, I get most of my information about where China is going, you know, from like Bill Bishop or you know some, somebody overseas, than anything I get here. And I've been here. I'm I'm also anxious to know. I mean, I've got to teach classes online. How long am I going to be here? There has been zero top-down bureaucratic announcement of this. And so all the all we can do is scream and yell at these poor people in white suits saying, when are we? And they said, oh, we'll just wait for an announcement. Wait wait for the official announcement. And then the official announcement never, never comes. comes. So it's horrible. Right. David, you mentioned when we were first uh, beginning that uh, a lot of things feel like a Going sort backwards. of yeah, back to the future kind of thing. Well, the one thing that has come back also big time, and I'm, uh, you know, having been around so long ago, I may be one of the very few foreign correspondents who actually remember this time, is the whole art of reading the tea leaves of the Politburo, what 
some people called Pekingology. Um, you know, it used to be a staple of China watchers. You know, when there was absolutely no official information available. Sound familiar? Then you start looking for clues. You know, you look for clues. You, you you talk to your driver. You talk to a hell of a lot of taxi drivers. You see how people act on the street. You overhear this and、um, things that are written on the walls. You notice things that are written in the bathroom. Exactly. And amazingly, in the past few weeks, it's it's all you know. For those who know how to do it, it's all come you know. It's 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 happening. You have to do that to know what's going on. I mean,、yeah. um, you know, just the recent party party congress when you know the big news, at least for one of the days, was、um, the sort of startling removal of、um, the previous president Hu Jintao. And you know everyone has gone through great lengths of analyzing the video, doing frame by frame analysis of the video, getting a minute earlier worth of video, and lip reading. Now we have lip reading analysis, and you know, and everyone's like, oh wow, it's all about the document that was on the table. And of course, of course, it was the document that's on the table. It always is the document. You know, going back centuries, it's always been the document. So. You know, not necessarily does it add to the <laughs> knowable knowledge of what's going on, but it, it 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 at least adds to your, the certainty with which you can say it. Oh yeah,、mm-hmm. the lip reading shows that it was the document.、Um, but you know, you, you know, we're reading the media not for what it says, but for what's behind the lines, behind the deadlines. We're kind of listening to what people say, listen, looking to see who's not saying things, and. It's、um, it does feel like Back to the Future. I mean, this this is what life was like in the eighties, and you know, in a way, it it makes it interesting <laughs> in a bizarre kind of well, way for some of us. Well, well, Melinda, are you are you saying that there that you feel like there was a period of time when there was a little bit more inside information or a little more、uh, contact? Oh yeah. Exchange. Of- oh yeah. So you really are saying it has gone backwards? Uh, back oh, it's certainly、where. gone backwards. Oh yeah. No, I mean, if you just remember. Okay, just to make it real simple, it's not quite this simple, but to make it sound simple, just go to the previous、um, time we were at this stage in the, shall we say, the political process,、um, which is now no longer, you know, there's no longer a process that we that we can say is、um, time time tested. But in the old days, it was like just about every ten years, you'd get to a point where One leader kind of starts to kind of hand over、uh, power to a to another, and、um, so that that would have been two、um, party congress, two of the every five year party congresses、right. earlier. Okay, so if you go back ten years, that was a pretty busy year. Yeah,、um, we had、uh, totally unexpected. Okay, you had all the normal horse trading and high level. Uh, negotiating and、um, you know closed door wrangling that goes to try to compose the next Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee. Okay, that always happens. But in addition to that, completely unexpectedly, you had some pretty weird and newsworthy things like、mm, the purge of Bo Xilai, you know, the、yeah. the the party chief of Chongqing, in a very public,、uh, rather dramatic. 
uh, manner where his wife was revealed to have had murdered a British businessman. Then you had the startling escape of um, his police chief, Wang Yijun, into the American consulate, consulate um, because he knew that who had killed the British businessman, and he brought a bunch of documents with him, and then he had to be kind of extracted. Well, you know, it had been negotiated, but it was rather tense. And then, you know, people were still kind of running around trying to figure things out. Then suddenly, in a whole, from a whole different direction, there was, um, for those who cover the news, there was a, a blind sort of rural activist who had been under house arrest for a long, long time, suddenly managing to escape and get, get a car. Well, he didn't drive it himself, obviously. Help, find help, get a car, get himself to Beijing, and then he ends up in the American embassy, right. use it, trying to use it as his own private broadcasting station. These are all things that, you know, yet they're not totally unheard of, but they're unusual. They're unusual when, uh, you know, when they coincide with that. But you're sort of saying period sort of saying, in this in the process. You seem to be saying that our we were getting uh, lots of juicy information because the system was was, we leaky. was too leaky. Was so leaky. It was and leaky. Did, it was leaky. Do you feel like that they're they're cracking? They've they're trying to fix those leaks. Is what they've done now. Oh right? yeah, no, those leaks are gone. The leaks are gone now. Well, okay. One of the reasons why it was leaky back then is because there was not only was there a factional struggle, but high-ranking ch- officials and their relatives had gotten sort of accustomed to rubbing shoulders with foreigners and telling them things and then some of them got the bright idea that oh if I can leak about what's happened to my father maybe I'll help him and so they did and so you had a lot of different angles getting into the news with actually pretty authoritative sources um, like the son of Bushy Lai was leaking. He was leaking like yeah. mad. I can even tell you who he was leaking to and who <laughs> later regretted that they were leaked to. But anyway, you know, or, you know, the blind activist Chung Guangcheng. I mean, that was rather unusual because the first I heard of him being free is he phoned me from the car saying, hey, you know, you man, I'm, I'm here. I'm like, where? I'm here. I'm in Beijing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I'm free. And I'm like, wow. oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, and then he just called me every day after that. From, no, from He was in a hospital. He was in the embassy, you know. And, of course, he, in that case, he was, being, he was able to talk because he had, he had the protection of a, of a foreign diplomatic facility. But there's nothing like that now. And, I mean, okay, just as an example of the extreme measures to which leaks have been plugged, you know, sometimes, not often, but sometimes you might hear some pretty authoritative things, or at least authoritative opinions, from um, circles attached to former Chinese leaders, retired Chinese leaders, who we would know, who we might call the party elders, or wannabe party elders, or relatives of party elders. So this this year, what was different? Well, this year, the party elders were completely cut out of the process. They were not even consulted, as far as I can tell, except possibly on a one-on-one basis, but not as a group. They were not, like, able to make their views known in a group um, about the new makeup of the Central Committee, Politburo, and Politburo Standing Committee. And so... So would we be surprised then that when the document finally comes out with all the names in it, as some people would be interested to know? Probably, they, you know, probably Hu Jintao did already know, or some, someone might have told him. You know, I, I also believe he's not in good health. 
it's possible, you know, had possibly some cognitive impairment due to old age and illness. Um, maybe he just became obsessed with the document. Um, it's, it's startling that even up to this day, you know, really all we know, all we have is the video, the official statement that, oh, he was not feeling well, but he's feeling better now. Uh, and the lip, you know, right, that, and that's about it. That's about it. You know, it's it's um, it's startling. Actually, we have gone backwards that way. The terseness of their their uh, you know their ex explanations can be are sort of in intellectually insulting. <laughs> that 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 we that they would expect that we would be satisfied with this. I have just a quick question. Then Jer Jeremiah, you can get. I just want to ask one quick question. You, the, you've just you're describing this clampdown and, and this uh, you know the party has figured out how to keep their their information more hermetically sealed inside the red box there. But uh, this is amidst an a, a, a information explosion that you've witnessed in journalism going from basically no internet at all to now internet everywhere and WeChat and digital tools everywhere. So there's, a, there's information channels are exponentially greater than they were back then. And yet you seem to be saying that they've actually accomplished a very tight hermetic shutdown even in the midst of all of these possible leaky, you know, conduits, how is that? How is that possible? Um, I think it's possible the way it's kind of even possible in the West. It's possible through uh, a sort of radical, radical information overload. Um, in the old days, you know, you'd get five nuggets. There were five what sounded like nuggets of information, and then you'd look at them carefully, and four of them wouldn't really make too much sense. Or someone would say, no, that's not it. And then you're left with one. And, you know, that's, that's a, then you can kind of assess it. Now you've got five million nuggets. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, well, how do you even begin to process that? How do you even, how do you even, and, 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 you know, we, I think the internet, I mean, which is like an amazing tool. And of course, you know, around the year 2000, you know, we were all writing stories of, you know, the internet, the internet, is has out, outstripped the ability for it to be managed, and it'll make it will make us free, and you know whatever whatever. What we didn't anticipate is that the the freewheeling nature and the the rapid proliferation of all kinds of mouthpieces also makes it almost impossible to assess the mountain of information that's coming out. Um, and so even in the West, you know the whole mantra of fake news mm -hmm. there are people who cannot tell the difference or feel there is no difference oh, oh the, yeah the best phrase was alternative facts right. you know so if you can't if you get all this stuff and you can't tell the difference then you've you've also achieved your goal nobody knows what the hell is going on so i think that's what's happening it's unfortunate um because it takes a hell of a lot more energy now to try to figure out, and then you've got just mountains of stuff coming in, much of which is nonsense. But you're right. Once in a while, okay, that's why uh, up until very recently, I also relied a lot more on the visuals online. You know, if you can have a, a photograph or a video, especially a video, harder to fake, then maybe what's being described in the video, maybe it really is true. But, of course, now we have deep fakes which make even video easy right. to fake. So what can you believe anymore? Which is also a very dangerous situation to be in. You know, you're, you're talking about this mountain of information, and I think one of the challenges, too, coming at it from the other direction, 
is the number of people available to climb these mountains to parse this information has dramatically declined. You know, the David and I have talked about the, the dangers of having fewer and fewer notebooks on the ground, as it were. And Melinda, in the past, you've, you've, you've been in a leadership position, uh, both formally and informally among the correspondents here. And I was wondering, you know, in terms of both from, from your perspective, having seen many of the correspondents come and go and also working with many of the correspondents and being occasionally something of a liaison before, between the correspondents and the powers that be, how have you know? Give us your take on on how you know things have unfolded in the last ten years. Is there is there a brighter future in coming up, or are we just? Is it going to be a situation where we have more and more bureaus closed and fewer and fewer journalists available to make sense of it all, right from right here, from in Beijing, from inside China? Right. That's that's a very difficult question for me to answer now. I myself don't. Don't know what I should say. Some days I wake up and I feel more optimistic. Some days I wake up and I, I'm not at all optimistic. Um, but past ten years, ten or fifteen years, I would say the biggest difference in terms of foreign correspondence is that in the old days, the feeling, the the perception was um, that Chinese officialdom needed us more than we needed them. And when you fast forward to today. It's exactly the other way around. The perception is that we need them; they don't need us. Now, I was I was uniquely fortunate um, to be the president of the Foreign Correspondents Club of China in the run up to the 2008 Beijing Olympics, and already you could see that that was a situation where they Chinese authorities were going to bend over backwards to try to appear um, welcoming, international. Normal and and easy to deal with and 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 cute and cuddly, and to a large part they they achieved some of that. There was even the one and only time that I can really kind of say without a lot of caveat, which is when the um, the official regulations governing foreign correspondence actually improved in our favor. Before, uh, you, before, if you wanted to go travel for news gathering purposes to another province, you actually had to get official permission from the provincial authorities, meaning a letter from them. And so you can imagine you'd have to negotiate, you'd have to call, you'd have to pass things back and forth, and you know. Um, and it, so there was nothing. There was no hopping on a plane and go going to cover a natural disaster when it was happening because. You had to have this prior permission. Of course, it wasn't it wasn't enforced as much as uh, uh, as much as it it increasingly was not enforced. Um, or what you could do is you could call a friend in in the remote location and say, "Hey, I want to I want to come. Can I come talk to you?" And if they said yes, then that could be your proof that someone was inviting you to come. Uh, but anyway. Uh, the year before the Olympics, that regulation was done away with, and we we recognized that to be a good step, and we applauded it. Um, there were other things we would have liked to have had that d- didn't come, but at least that was one solid step. There were still restrictions for Tibet, 
which was always a favorite place for uh, um, correspondents to go. And there were still loopholes, which of course are now the norm. You know, the loopholes being local authorities could implement restrictions on news gathering to, to, to protect public order or whatever. Oh, okay, I mean, let's face it. In the West, if you've got a big fire, natural disaster, 9-11, I mean, you, you might want to have some restrictions on what kind of people are like digging through the rubble when you're trying to rescue injured injured survivors. So, okay, fine. But it's, 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 it, that whole thing has taken the place of the earlier regulation. But there were a few... There were a few months there when it was, it was pretty heady, and of course, very tragically, there had been a very bad, a deadly earthquake before the Olympics, and it was the first time that we all could just jump on the plane and get out there, and some people were actually almost in shock that they had to decide, do I take my camera and film what I'm seeing, or do I put my camera down and help save people's lives, because there were people dying in the rubble right in front of journalists, which was a very unusual situation for China. So, so yeah, but that was things I, have changed. And I remember they, that also you know. being not only a sort of a turning point for just uh, information transparency, you know, worldwide with a, covering an earthquake, but it was, seemed to be the first time that you could actually get not only a social media or non-professional journalists involved in in uh, re re what he's not retweeting what do you say you know resending messages and and doing their own videos and posting them online, and that seemed to be another like promising sort of route for for internal you know distribution of information, and that seems to have dried up too. To some degree, that has the risks for the so-called citizen journalists have have definitely escalated. And the other thing which um, has happened at the same time, it's not, a, it's not exclusive to China, but it does have a, the scale of it I think is pretty unusual, except in China, is you have these armies of trolls, some of whom don't really, you know, they don't actually necessarily believe the uh, beliefs that they seem to be supporting with great vehemence and vigor and, and sometimes even threatening uh, manner, but they have something to gain by doing that. What do they gain? Well, they sometimes they gain followers. Sometimes they gain the attention of a commercial entity that might hire them to do something. Sometimes they are hired to do something by an entity that wants them to do it, and they just do it. Um, but all, all we know is that it, at the moment when some kind of red meat is thrown out there, there's a hell of a lot of predators that just swoop on it in great numbers, often often from accounts that are not used for anything else, often with language that is very similar to each other, and they just attack the hell out of whoever said that. If I were a citizen journalist, I might just be quiet too. Maybe this is a time for just zipping it up. One of the really disturbing patterns with these troll attacks has been the way that they have particularly gone after women of Asian descent and Chinese descent who are either reporting from China or are writing about China from outside the borders. And of course, the trolls are, are pretty, you know, they'll, they'll attack just about anybody. But the way they have gone after some of these women, the very graphic, you know, threats of sexual violence and, and it reveals both a kind of perhaps a, a scary pathology on the part of the people who are in this troll army, but also, I think, a real anxiety about identity and that for some reason, and maybe we can talk about it, I mean, the idea of somebody of 
a Chinese cultural background or of Asian ethnicity reporting on China for the West, in quotes, right, really hits a chord with a lot of the more nationalist or, you know, nationalist trolls out there. And I was wondering, I mean, you know, you've, you've been reporting on it but before the rise of Internet trolls as well. But I'm curious if in your own career you felt that there was a difference in the way, either good or, or bad, that your reporting or you as a reporter were treated um, in China compared with colleagues who were Caucasian or male or, you know, didn't fit, you know, some of these uh, preconceived notions of, let's just say, Chinese womanhood that seems to be so precious to many of the nationalists here in the country. Yeah, definitely. This is a very um, disturbing phenomenon. Um, I'd look at it kind of in two different ways. I, um, it, you know, generically as the phenomenon, but, you know, in, in terms of the way it, it affects me, I probably saw aspects of this before I even knew there was a trend. I just thought it. I just thought it had to do with there are worldwide stereotypes of Asian women as meek, submissive, small, weak, um, you know, not independent-minded, um, not physically um, fit. Sometimes, or, or you know, I you know, like, like I remember my father talking about women with bound feet, and he really thought that was cool. And I was like, ooh, not cool, not cool. You know, the idea that uh, you know physically they, that it was somehow appealing that back in history Chinese women you know weren't supposed to be able-bodied and and you know muscular like Manchu women who had big feet and could run around you know that sort of thing anyway all of these things uh, you know of course they affected the way people perceived you and and I just dealt with it the same way you know and it was, you know I definitely as a foreign correspondent I was treated much much different than white guys absolutely and the main thing I dealt with, I mean, I had, I had some defensive mechanisms, but these go back decades. I mean, many of these were, like, honed in the battlefields of Kabul and, and Iraq. They didn't have to do with China necessarily, which was, number one, you've got to be, I was going to use the F word, but I'll say really good at your job. <laughs> and if you weren't good at your job and people criticize you, well, then you just weren't good at your job. You know, it doesn't matter your gender, you know, whatever. You're just not good at your job. You had to be aware that most serial killers victimize women far more than they victimize men. So you have to be aware of your physical capabilities and you have to be aware of uh, the need to be able to defend yourself or to be able to appear like you can defend yourself. So very early on, okay, like in the 80s, I learned how to use weapons. I, I, know, I actually know how to use M16s and assault rifles and stuff like that. And I don't own one, and I, I just know how to use them. And I've got a really cool picture of myself, you know, firing a rocket launcher if you really want to see it. But the other thing is uh, you've got to have a certain level of... Um, you've just got to have, have... You just have to figure out a way to deal with bullies, which can be women, but mostly they're men. And so uh, my mechanism was, I, I have a pretty bad temper. Na Jeremiah, you maybe haven't seen that yet, but I actually do. And sometimes if I, I'm losing my temper, I suddenly become very, very quiet and don't say anything. 
And then if this, whatever this, the offense is that's happening, if it continues, then just suddenly things snap, and I'm literally on the table yelling, you fucking idiot, and shocking the whole world, you know, because, oh, I thought she was such a nice girl, you know, I mean, literally jumping down the throats of people who, you know, people saying things like, oh, women don't know how to cover a war, that sort of thing. I've seen more men fall apart covering war than I have seen women. Partly because there aren't that many women covering war, but still, I've, I've seen men fall apart quite quite pathetically, actually. And, you know, and it just that was just my M.O. I mean, I have jumped over hotel counters to throttle hotel clerks who don't pay attention to me when I'm trying to check out, that sort of thing. And it's not good. It's, it's, it's an angry issue. But for the situations when I used it, it was rather effective, I might say. So that's it. Now, when it comes to the, the current situation, I'm sort of slightly in a different thing because there's, there, are also, there are also cultural norms about maybe it's unfair to pick on little old ladies with gray hair, you know, that sort of thing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the normal profile of the, the people who are being um, trolled now. But, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a very insidious thing because, of course, there are, let's face it, in the, in the world of journalism, there probably are some entities with a bad newsroom culture. There are some entities where women are not valued as much as men. There, there are many entities where women do not promote themselves and, and assert themselves as much as men do in, in, the, in the pursuit of their careers. Maybe the top editors and the senior people, you know, maybe, maybe that affects their willingness to stand up for women, you know, when the women have some kind of complaint. Or maybe they just don't understand it. I mean, you know, there might be, you know, they might even be saying, oh, you know, get used to it. You know, we get, we get these kind of emails all the time. You know, not thinking that for a man, you know, to have someone say, you know, I'm going to rape you, I'm going to rape your daughter, I'm going to rape your grandmother. I'm going to make, you know, whatever. Talk to a man and say that, and they go, well, yeah, okay. You know, it's, it's, it's weird, but it's not, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't evoke the visceral fear um, that it would by someone who really, you know, who, who, who maybe even has, or, you know, who, who can imagine um, that the threat of rape is, um, you know, a very real and everyday thing for, for, for many women. I'm not saying men don't experience it, I'm, yes, they do. And sometimes they, they even are raped by women. But I, I, I think the numbers are rather small. Well, Melinda, I mean, I think it's really important to hear um, that perspective, not just in terms of your perspective as a woman who has covered um, so many important events in some incredibly difficult circumstances, but also um, somebody who has, you know, again, I think it's important that young, younger journalists have mentors, they have people that they can look up to, and also somebody who has worked with so many people trying to help them in their careers. One of the, your own career has been defined a bit by your time in China, but a lot of it too has been spent in war zones around the world. And you were talking about just, you know, how that um, has affected you and affected the people that you've worked with. Your own personal, your family background has a connection with World War II. And, and I know that has become a, a subject of your own personal research. And as a historian, 
Um, I'm fascinated by that era, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about that family story and how it informs what you're what you're working on when you're not um, covering the news. Right, and and thanks for that uh, question, Jeremiah. Yeah, um, like like many Chinese Americans, uh, my family uh, lived through World War II. Uh, my parents uh, specifically, and um, and yet I. I I kind of feel like I, there's something about war that that drew me, even as a little kid. Something about the narrative, because there was a very specific war story involving my father, involving my family, my parents. That you know, I've known ever since I was born, basically, or hard. And and you know, I'm sure there are. I don't know if any of my friends were psychologists. I'm sure they would probably have concluded that you know there was something about my you know being ready to report in a war that has something to do with my father. And, you know, I can't rule that out, so I'll just tell you what the story is. So my parents were born in China, and they went to school at uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing, but they came from further south, my mother from um, Jiangsu, uh, actually both of them from Jiangsu province. And um, they 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 were in China during the Japanese occupation, and the war that we come to know as World War II, but for the Chinese they often call it the Japanese, the war against Japanese aggression. And the story goes like this. My father had been an aeronautical engineer student at Tsinghua. He, um, he always wanted to be doing something with aeronautical engineering. Um, a lot of his course materials was in English, so he could speak English anyway. He was uh, in a very small town near the Chinese coast, near Ningbo in Zhejiang province, in 1942. And he was trying to get smuggled across the Japanese front lines to get to the interior of China in the west, and eventually to Chongqing, which was the wartime capital of what we knew as Free China. And um, he had contacted some people smugglers who were going to lead him through the mountains and and whatnot to get there and and so he was waiting in a hotel with a suitcase and then indeed one evening some or maybe it was okay one day i'm not even sure what time it was uh some locals came to him and their first question they knocked on his door and he said do you speak english and he said yes i speak some because of i went to university and they said okay come with us bring your suitcase so he came with them they went to a building with a lot of people milling around and then they kind of pushed him into a room and to his surprise inside the room there were five americans airmen you know dressed in pilot outfits but totally disheveled you know muddy and they were hungry and they were un- unshaven and they were suspicious and nobody could communicate with each other because they were speaking english and the chinese were speaking only chinese and so that was what they wa- what the locals wanted was for him to help translate and what my father learned in those few minutes is these were pilots of a crew of a group of men american aviators known as the doolittle raiders and they had been trained in secret in um in early 1942 to attack japan in what the white house wanted to be a sort of retaliation for Pearl Harbor, which was December 1941. And it was supposed to be a surprise, and it was supposed to be a blow to Japanese morale because they were going to attack Japan, the homeland, not not 
far-off islands in the Pacific where a lot of the conflict was taking place, and by that time, a lot of, a lot of the Japanese victories were taking place. And so the, the Doolittle Raiders uh, basically took off from an aircraft carrier. Make a long story short, they, they actually, there were, there were um, 16 aircraft. They completed their mission successfully, but they, that's when things kind of didn't go so well. They, um, they were supposed to land at an airstrip in China, but they ran out of fuel for a number of reasons that were outside of their control. And they just sort of parachuted out or crash-landed all over several provinces of China. And then they relied on the kindness of Chinese strangers, for the most part, to help them get to safety. A number of them were captured. Some of them were executed. One died in a POW camp. But a large, large number of them survived. The stories of how they managed to survive, all of these people spread over you know, vast countryside, you know, were just amazing stories of, wartime stories of human-to-human um, -human motivation. And, uh, and so my father was one of those people. He helped, that was a crew uh, that he helped and, and came to know very, very well. But the larger group, um, you know, dozens of, dozens of them, he also helped them and he stayed with them and helped them get from Zhejiang province to Chongqing. And then they said goodbye, you know, the war was still happening. They thought, neither side thought they would see each other again. Meanwhile, my father went to work for um, the Chinese National Aviation Corporation, which was the kind of precursor of the current Air China, and, and had some Pan Am involvement as well. And then, and then in 19, as soon as the war was over, he went to the States to study. And my mother had, had preceded him by a year, so they were both in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One day he opened up the paper, and there was a little item that said, the group of men known as the Doolittle Raiders are having a reunion in the such-and-such -such hotel in Minneapolis. So he said, hey, I'll go see them. I know them. So he showed up with my mother. She was heavily pregnant, and they, got re you know, they had a great reunion with all their old buddies. And uh, the, the, the Doolittle Raiders had annual reunions after that, and they, they not only invited him to attend each of those reunions, but they made him an honorary member of the Doolittle Raiders. And so that whole group, you know, are people that I grew up with. And so that, that's basically the narrative. And I, you know, I've lived with this story my whole life. Um, there are many books written about it already. What I realized after coming to China is that many of the books told, and, and, and many of them told very well, um, parts of the story, uh, such as you know the the America Japan dynamic and what did that mean to the war in the Pacific, or the you know the sort of America and and the wider war situation. But what was not told very well, I thought, because after being here for a number of years, I heard the stories on this side. Well, what I thought was really cool were, were the, the stories of the Chinese, the Chinese who helped them, the Chinese who were affected by them, uh, the communities, and um, and you know it wasn't it wasn't there weren't all warm and kindly stories. There was a terrible retaliation implemented by the Japanese on the Chinese communities that had helped the raiders, uh, including biological warfare, every manner of of attack and, and assault and, you know, killing and, you know, as we know, was very common during World War II. And uh, the Chinese paid a terrible price for, for, for helping these, these Americans. 
And, um, and so eventually I became active in a group called the Children of the Doolittle Raiders, which was mainly um, run by the second generation of, of these aviators. A few years ago, before COVID, I helped organize a group of them, a couple of dozen of those who wanted to come, to come to China, many for the first time, some of them actually traveling overseas for the very first time to follow in the footsteps of their fathers and, and in those days, you know, meet some of the families that had helped their fathers. Like, there were a, a couple of really old guys, but in most cases it was the children of the original rescuers, Chinese rescuers. So you had the second generation of the aviators meeting the second generation of the people who rescued the aviators. So it was kind of cool. Yeah, and so that's the story. And it's, you know, it just new stuff keeps coming out, and it's fascinating. And it's also counterintuitive a little bit um, that there would be Chinese rescuing an American, you know, during the war, where so many stories would have been the other way around. Uh, and of course, in today's challenging relationship between China and the U.S., it's a it's a kind of memory that that many, some people didn't even know about or didn't know very little about. But but for others, it's a kind of a a positive memory. I mean, the the legacy of the Dulu Raiders in China, for both sides, actually um, is seen as a, an example of Sino-U.S. cooperation and friendship. E- even though there's many opportunities to to see negative things about it. Um, including the, the tragic loss of life. But, um, but yeah, so I've been working on that. Um, I made a small film about it myself. A director who, who's a friend of mine named Bill Eileinhofer um, made a larger film about it. Um, actually uh, focused a lot on the, that trip that we took a few years back, the return, because there were a lot of funny anecdotes and then all the people who were on the trip could be interviewed about uh, what they felt and how it all came about. And, and of course, a few years ago, the relationship between the two governments was also somewhat slightly better. Well, it, it wasn't that much better, but it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't on quite the downward trajectory that it has reached now. Well, that's a remarkable story, Melinda, and I really want to thank you for sharing it. It's, it's uh, you know, in terms of, as a historian, I, I think it's always fascinating when somebody's research also connects in a very personal way with their, um, either their family or their background, and I think that gives a uh, that gives a resonance to to the to the research and the presentation of that material that you know it, it's hard to replicate for 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 those of us who are just studying people that you know well, it was a good, it was a cool story I liked it in the library it's a very different kind of experience. It, Melinda, th- thank you, Melinda. Thank you so much for 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 agreeing to come on today, and uh, we'd love to have you come back and hear more about your research and also I mean, once again just to to get some more of your really incredible perspective on all of these events as they're unfolding here. And, you know, there are so few of us, it feels like, left in Beijing that those of us who are here, um, you know, have our have our stories to share. And uh, hopefully um, those of you outside the, outside the borders um, find those interesting as well. David, you know, man, I hope you are liberated soon, like real <laughs> soon. Yeah, liberate. Yeah, I need the PLA. Lockdown twice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you. I'll, I'll send you some uh, links. You can, you know, I, it's probably rather insidious to just be watching the small screen all the time while you're in quarantine. But I must admit, I, 
I, I binged on Netflix when I was in quarantine coming back. Ah, I don't yes. know that there's much else you can do. Oh, yes, I've been guilty of that. Anyway, great. Melinda, thank you for coming on. We'll put some of these links uh, to the to the, to the Doodle uh, Airmen and uh, whatever else on, on our website. And anything else you want to put great. on there, there's a, there's a lot about you. You know, you've, you're part of a, a chapter, an entire chapter of a, a recent book. All of these things we'll put on the site. And please come back again because there's a lot more to talk about. And as Jeremiah said, it's it's feeling kind of lonely here. <laughs> you, you're one of the few people who uh, we could even talk to about these sorts of things. So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Let's stay in touch, not just on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much. Me too. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.